Some Americans are expected to be able to leave Gaza for Egypt today as more foreign nationals try to escape the war between Israel and Hamas. It's Thursday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Israeli military faces challenges fighting Hamas because of the vast network of tunnels it uses. This is where they keep their ammunition, their weapons, their rocket launchers. This is where they have their command and control centers inside these subterranean structures. Also indicted New York Congressman George Santos survives a vote to expel him from the House. And this hour. What I worry about is building rail systems that end up disappointing people, which is what I think is likely to happen here. After decades of delays, can direct train service between Boston and New Bedford deliver on its promises? In sports, Celtics win sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Israeli warplanes struck a densely populated neighborhood in the Gaza Strip over two consecutive days. Images show the bombs dropped on the apartment towers in the refugee camp demolished or damaged more than a dozen buildings. The health ministry in Gaza says the attacks killed nearly 200 people and wounded hundreds of others. NPR's Aya Betrawi reports that rescue teams are searching for more than 100 people who appear to be trapped under the rubble. Palestinians are still digging with their bare hands, frantically searching for missing children and families amid the destruction and rubble of the Jabalia refugee camp. Israel says it was targeting a senior Hamas commander in tunnels. Hamas says the airstrikes killed seven hostages from Israel. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says he's appalled by the attacks on Jabalia. The UN human rights chief says the attacks could amount to war crimes. Israel has been striking the Gaza Strip for nearly a month since Palestinian militants attacked Israel, killing 1,400 people. Israel's bombardment since has killed around 9,000 Palestinians, including nearly 4,000 children in Gaza. Aya Patrawi, NPR News. The White House is outlining new plans to develop a strategy to counter Islamophobia in the United States. NPR's Ozma Khalid reports the administration is facing mounting criticism from Muslims in America over Israel's war with Gaza. There was a striking poll that was released this week by the Arab American Institute that found support for Biden has plummeted. In 2020, 59% of Arab voters supported Biden, that poll found. This new survey found that that support has fallen to 17%. Um, Likewise, a survey of Muslim voters found a staggering number of people say they cannot vote for Biden's re-election. NPR's Asma Khalid reporting. President Biden has continued to press Israel to follow international laws that protect civilians in conflict and to push for increased aid to Gaza. Congressman Ken Buck has announced that he will not seek a sixth term in office. Colorado Public Radio's Caitlin Kim reports the Republican has repeatedly clashed with members of his party who have refused to accept the results of the 2020 presidential election. In a video statement, Buck said he made the decision to retire because of the direction of the Republican Party. Too many Republican leaders are lying to America, claiming that the 2020 election was stolen, describing January 6th as an unguided tour of the Capitol. Buck has become a thorn to party leadership in recent months. He's argued there is not enough evidence for an impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden and was one of eight Republicans to vote to oust former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. For NPR News, I'm Caitlin Kim in Washington. This is NPR.
China has agreed to work with the United States, European Union, and other countries to manage the threat from artificial intelligence. Delegates from 28 nations are meeting at a summit in the United Kingdom. Vice President Kamala Harris is scheduled to attend the gathering today. She's expected to stress the need to hold tech companies accountable, including through legislation. A federal commission has issued its recommendations to help tribal communities, federal agencies, and law enforcement to respond to the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton has more. According to federal crime data, American Indians and Alaska Natives go missing or are murdered at higher rates than their white counterparts. Many cases go unsolved. Congress passed the Not Invisible Act in 2020. The bill formed a federal commission made up of tribal leaders, federal agencies, families, and survivors. The commission held several hearings across the country to get input from tribal communities. The commission issued numerous recommendations. It called for more federal funding for tribal police and changes to federal laws that limit tribal police investigations. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. The Texas Rangers clinched their first World Series title last night, beating the Arizona Diamondbacks in Game Five of the Fall Classic. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBMR in Boston. Massachusetts can move forward with a wait list for its family shelter system. Yesterday, a judge denied a request to temporarily stop the state's implementation of the wait list. The Healy administration says families with highest needs will be prioritized under the new system. There are currently around 100 spots open in the family shelter system before the list goes into effect. This morning in Fitchburg, there will be a groundbreaking ceremony for a $40 million artist housing project. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports it's a project 10 years in the making. The project will transform three historic buildings across the street from the Fitchburg Art Museum, where Nick Capasso is director. He says it will create 68 apartments, plus studio, gallery, rehearsal, and performance space for a range of creatives. Not only from our local artist community, but also from the very large artist community in Worcester, which is right down the road, and also the artist community in Boston, who can't afford to live in Boston anymore. The project is a coordinated effort between the museum, the city, and a community development corporation. It's slated for occupancy in early 2025. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Cyclists and pedestrians will have a new way to get around Medford. Crews are breaking ground today on the Clipper Ship Connector Path. The half-mile stretch will run between Medford Square and Riverbend Park along the Mystic River. It also connects the area to 10 miles of adjoining greenways. Medford Mayor Brianna Lungo-Kern says she hopes the path will encourage people to try alternate means of travel. We are really working here in Medford for greenways to travel. It's easy for our residents, especially ones as well that don't have cars, to be able to use bikes and be able to walk to and from places where they feel safe. I think it will help the environment. The mayor estimates it'll take just over a year to complete the project. It's 7.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential AI. Join Sam Scarpino, the Institute's Director of AI and Life Sciences, as he explores exciting advancements in AI and life sciences during a free webinar November 8th at 1. Register at ai.northeastern.edu. The Celtics topped the Indiana Pacers 155-104 to last night at the Garden. They'll visit the Brooklyn Nets on Saturday. Tonight at the Garden, it's the Bruins and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Sunny today and in the mid-40s. It'll be clear overnight and get down to the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-50s. Sunny on Saturday and near 60. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. As we have been hearing from people in Gaza when we have been able to reach them, conditions in the Gaza Strip are growing worse by the day, with water, food, and medicine running out, and electricity, phone service, and internet connections compromised or not available at all. This all comes after militants associated with Hamas, which is the governing authority in Gaza, crossed into southern Israel and killed 1,400 people and took more than 200 hostages last month. Israel has responded by pounding the area with airstrikes and is amassing a land force. The health ministry in Gaza says the death toll in Gaza has now surpassed 8,700 people. President Biden and other members of his administration have strongly backed Israel's right to defend itself while pressing Israel to consider the way it responds. To hear more about this, we've called Deputy National Security Advisor John Feiner, and he's with us now from the White House. Mr. Feiner, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let me just start with the news that Israel hit a large refugee camp in Gaza's northern neighborhood of Jabalaya twice this week. Israel's military says that it killed a key Hamas leader who helped plan the October 7th attack. Does the U.S. have proof that this Hamas leader was indeed killed? Look, let let me just start by saying that that both the images and the reality of the crisis that is unfolding in Gaza are devastating. There are people uh, dying who are uh, totally innocent and who have nothing to do with the fighting. There are also uh, a number, a significant number of legitimate uh, military targets, uh, given the devastating attack uh, that Israel suffered uh, at the hands of Hamas. Uh, As you indicated, Hamas launched this round uh, of the conflict, but uh, as the president has been clear, that does not uh, diminish the obligation that Israel has uh, to wage uh, its side of the war in a manner that is consistent both with international humanitarian law and the distinguishes between Hamas, uh, which are legitimate targets, and the people of Gaza uh, who are simply caught up uh, in in this fighting. Hamas obviously makes it far worse by the way in which they fight, uh, often hiding among uh, civilians uh, in in densely populated areas. Yes, I see your point. That is what we also just stated. Does the U.S. have proof that this leader was in fact killed? I'm not going to speak to this uh, specific incident. We are not uh, on the ground. We are not present uh, physically. The United States government uh, in Gaza, we are still gathering information about it. uh, And often initial reports end up uh, evolving over time. So uh, I will not speak to this uh, as it is uh, continuing to unfold. So the U.N. Refugee Agency says that nearly 70 percent of those killed in Gaza to this point have been women and children. Does this response by Israel, is it proportionate? 
look, what, what I will say uh, is, is, again, uh, there are people who are being killed in Gaza who have nothing to do with the fighting, people who are fundamentally innocent. The president has spoken uh, to mothers uh, who are uh, spoken to the fact that there are mothers uh, who are writing the names of their children on their bodies. Uh, so if they are separated or if their children are, are harmed in some way, uh, they will be able to be uh, found and, and reconnected. Nobody uh, should have to live through uh, this sort of situation. Uh, but there are also, again, uh, continue to be legitimate military targets that Israel is pursuing. Uh, you spoke about the mm -hmm. way in which this conflict began. Uh, I think that is important to bear in mind, the way in which Hamas fights this conflict in a way that actually maximizes uh, civilian casualties on the Palestinian side is worth bearing in mind. It has to be remembered. Uh, and Israel's obligation to fight this war, even if uh, its cause is, is fundamentally a just one in going after Hamas uh, in a way that it is just, uh, is also something what, what that does, we are stressing. What does bearing in mind mean in this context? Are you saying that whatever the civilian casualties are, the position of the United States is that this is Hamas's fault and that Israel bears no responsibility? Is that is that the position Absolutely of the government? Not. Uh, that's not neither mm -hmm. what we that's neither our position nor what I literally just mm -hmm. said on on your program. We have mm -hmm. said uh, fundamentally that Hamas sparked this round of the fighting with its attack on Israel, that it maximizes civilian casualties by the way in which it fights, and that that places a heavy burden on Israel, mm -hmm. but that that also does not diminish Israel's responsibility mm -hmm. to fight in a manner that is consistent with international humanitarian law and that distinguishes uh, between fighters mm -hmm. and non-combatants. So the president has said that he wants a pause short of a ceasefire to let civilians get out to get more relief supplies in. Uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Mr. Netanyahu, has already rejected calls for a ceasefire. What, what's the next step here? Is there a negotiation around this point? Uh, this is something that we will continue to discuss uh, with our uh, Israeli uh, partners and allies. Uh, the president was speaking of pauses, as a number of administra administration officials uh, have called for in, in recent days, that would allow for uh, easier distribution of humanitarian aid and, importantly, for the release of hostages. There continue to be a significant number of hostages held by Hamas. And uh, in order to get those hostages uh, out of captivity uh, and ultimately freed, which is a high priority of, of this administration and the international community, it will require uh, some diminution uh, in the fighting. The, the small number of hostages who have been released uh, already during this conflict uh, were only released when there was some uh, uh, a pause uh, in the fighting to allow them to move safely uh, to a border area and ultimately out of Gaza. And the president has said and others have said that we would support doing that again. And so with the border crossing with Egypt now open, we understand that there are still hundreds of Americans, American citizens, American passport holders who are still in Gaza who can't get out. Do we see progress on this point? Why, why can't they get out now? Well, importantly, just yesterday, a significant number of international uh, passport holders were able to leave uh, Gaza for the first time. That included a small number of Americans. Uh, our understanding is that uh, more Americans, international passport holders, have been able to depart uh, Gaza today. That process is, is still unfolding. They're still departing in real time uh, as we speak, so I can't uh, speak to specific numbers. But this just began yesterday. It's been an important area of focus uh, for our diplomacy, and we hope and expect that a significant number uh, will continue to depart today and in the in the days ahead. And uh, before we let you go, in this country, we're seeing reports of escalating attacks on both Jews and Muslims. We understand that the administration has released a national strategy to counter. The, the administration released a strategy to counter anti-Semitism in May. Now the White House says it's developing a strategy to counter Islamophobia. It, 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 this is too complex a question for the time that we have left. Realistically, when can we see an actual strategy developed on this that we can talk about? 
Well, there'll be a, a strategy released in, in, in the coming weeks. What I, what I will say about this is, is uh, neither uh, anti-Semitism nor Islamophobia are, are new problems uh, in this country, tragically, uh, but these are uh, phenomena that have gotten worse uh, in the mm-hmm. context of this conflict. Yes. The president released a strategy on anti-Semitism. He launched uh, the start of a process to produce an Islamophobia strategy uh, just yesterday, uh, and he has said that there is no place in this country for hatred of, of Jews, Muslims, or anyone else. That is Deputy National Security Advisor John Mr. Feiner, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. As Israel pushes into Gaza with a ground offensive, one of its biggest challenges will be dealing with a vast underground tunnel system Hamas uses for its military operations. It's something they've tried to do in the past without success, and it puts civilians at risk. NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Jerusalem. Israel's military calls it simply the Gaza Metro, a labyrinth of Hamas tunnels winding underneath fields, schools, mosques, and hospitals in Gaza. This video by the Israel Defense Forces shows armed Hamas militants moving quickly through tall tunnels before emerging from a barely noticeable hole in the ground. A Hamas leader proclaims the militant group has hundreds of miles of underground tunnels. This is where they keep their ammunition, their weapons, their rocket launchers. This is where they have their command and control centers. Daphne Richemont-Barak is a specialist on tunnels at Tel Aviv's Reichman University and wrote a book called Underground Warfare. She says tunnels in Gaza have been around for decades, but she says they turned into a strategic threat in 2014 when the militants used them for surprise attacks. Israel really took um, full measure, I think, uh, in 2014. That was a wake-up call for Israel, but not just a wake-up call, it also led to a, a change of strategy. After that, Israel began studying ways to better detect, map, and seal off tunnels. In 2021, during another conflict with Hamas, Israel said it took out more than 60 miles worth of tunnels. But Lenny Ben-David, a researcher at the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, says this latest crisis shows there's still a major threat. Israel made a great effort to go after the metro, as they called it, and it now appears that they failed to finish with the uh, tunnels. Joel Roskin, a professor at Baralan University who focused on tunnels while in the Israeli military, says Hamas is continually building and adapting, making the tunnels deeper, zigzagging rather than straight lines. We know that Hamas is investing most of their resources also in intelligence, in, in mind, in creativity, in, in, in working on this, on this tunnel complex. Um, so we can expect that their the tunnels are significantly more complex than what we saw in 2014. Kobe Michael, a Hamas specialist at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv, says the militants have had help building the tunnels. Iran assisted Hamas with uh, technological knowledge, military knowledge, um, uh, weapon uh, supply, money, and engineering knowledge as well. But it's civilians who often pay the price in the tunnel war when Israel bombs tunnels but also destroys the buildings above them. Israel blames Hamas for tunneling under civilian buildings, but rights groups say that doesn't justify civilian casualties. And Bar-Ilan University's Roskin says there are other ways to destroy a tunnel. Using different types of liquids, uh, gas, explosives. In 2019, in operations in Lebanon, the military uh, tried to fill the tunnels with slurry, which is like a loose cement. In some cases, Israeli soldiers will have to enter the tunnel. 
An elite team called Samur, weasel in Hebrew, has been trained for tunnel combat. Reichman University's Rishamon Barak says soldiers will have limited communications underground and face booby traps. So we're looking at one-on-one combat, which is very different than what modern warfare really is about. This is a return to medieval ways of fighting. Major General Mickey Edelstein is commander of the Israel Defense Forces Operational Planning Team and led the military's tunnel warfare efforts in 2014. And it is a, a challenge, but we have the right capabilities. I'm, I trust our forces. What could further complicate Israel's targeting the tunnels are the roughly 240 hostages being held by Hamas. Last month, an elderly hostage released by the militants said she had been led for hours through a spider web of tunnels and held with others for more than two weeks, far below the Earth's surface. That's NPR's Jackie Northam in Jerusalem, and this is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Representative George Santos has survived a vote to expel him from the House. Led by his fellow New York Republicans, he still faces a criminal trial and health ethics investigation. It's 720. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm Robin Young. Assault-style weapons have become a common feature in shooting incidents around the country. But in the 1980s, the gun that was getting a lot of attention was the Glock. It was new from top to bottom, and it was sort of pitched as the gun of the future. Our series on the history of gun culture in America continues next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Highs in the upper 40s today under clear skies. Still clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-30s. Sunny tomorrow and warmer with highs in the mid-50s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways. In select theaters tomorrow, everywhere November 10th. From Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. The Texas Rangers are World Series champions for the first time in franchise history. They beat the Arizona Diamondbacks 5-0 last night in Game 5 of the series. Tolawani Osibamowo from member station KERA reports that it's a moment many fans in North Texas have been waiting for their whole lives. Things were tense as both teams remained scoreless into the seventh inning. Consistent strikeouts from Arizona's Zach Gallen made sure of that. But it was a single from Rangers shortstop Corey Seager at the top of the seventh that finally got things into motion for Texas. A Mitch Garver single drove Seager home, and four more runs at the top of the ninth inning solidified the Rangers' win. The Rangers clinched the championship two states away from home, but it was at their home field in Arlington that their victory was the sweetest.
This was the Rangers' third shot at a championship title since two back-to-back -back losses at the 2010 and 2011 World Series. Dallas fan Corey Carrasco says both 12 years ago and now, it all came down to the final out of the game. We were there back 2011, we were one out away. We know that feeling, so now it's like, hey, that last out to get it feels so great, so good. Many baseball fans thought this year's World Series was an unlikely matchup of two underdog teams. Both Texas and Arizona each lost more than 100 regular season games just two years ago. The Diamondbacks won their first and only series ring back in 2001 against the New York Yankees. Gloria Sanchez, who says she's the Rangers' biggest fan, is actually from Arizona. But she's been a Texas fan for the past 30 years, and she says she's always believed in her Rangers. No matter what they've done in the past, here we are today. World Series, baby! World Series! Wow! Yes! Fans also say the Rangers' success and their loyal fan base shows the rest of the world what North Texas already knew. It's not all about the Cowboys in Dallas-Fort Worth. Carrasco's boyfriend, Jesse Vallejo, said after the game, it was just a joy to celebrate the win in Arlington among other North Texas fans. This is what baseball is. This is community right here. It has no race, has no political affiliation. It's just, it's baseball. It's the Rangers, and we did it. For NPR News, I'm Toluwani Osibamowo in Arlington, Texas. Hall of Fame basketball coach Bobby Knight has died. He was 83 years old. Knight coached at West Point, Texas Tech, and most famously for Indiana University. His history included stunning and often sweeping victories and disturbing performances both at and away from the arena, including a remark he once made about sexual violence that whipped up a storm of criticism. Pat Bean of member station WFIU looks back. Robert Bob Knight was born on October 25, 1940. He grew up in Orville, a small town outside of Akron, Ohio. In college, he played on Ohio State's basketball team when the Buckeyes won the NCAA championship in 1960. His first head coaching job was at the Army Academy in New York, but it was at Indiana, the state where basketball is king, that Knight made his mark. At Assembly Hall, banners tell the story of the Hoosiers' three NCAA championships and an NIT title won with Knight as coach. Knight was known for his motion offense and man-to-man -man defense. He also emphasized academics, making sure his players went to class and graduated. Current Indiana head coach Mike Woodson played for Knight in the late 1970s. A former NBA player and coach, Woodson says he wouldn't be where he is today without Bob Knight. He taught me how to play the game of basketball. From a fundamental standpoint, he taught me how to be a man on and off the floor. And that was huge for me, coming out of the city inner cities of Indianapolis. Knight was a four-time National College Coach of the Year, and he also led Team USA to gold medals at the 1979 Pan American Games and the 1984 Olympics. But during his induction into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1991, Knight said his accomplishments were due to his players. I've never felt comfortable with the award Coach of the Year or Coach of Anything. I think there's a much more appropriate nomenclature that could be used, and that would be team of the year. But while Knight's teams won consistently, he was controversial on and off the court. He often berated officials and players during games. In 1979, he was charged with assaulting a police officer in Puerto Rico 
and during a game against rival Purdue in 1985, hurled a chair across the court. And in a 1988 interview with NBC's Connie Chung, his comments about how he handled stress caused a furor. I think that uh, uh, if rape is inevitable, relax and enjoy it. Knight would go on to tell Chung he was not talking about the act itself, but was simply using a common saying. In 2000, Indiana fired Knight for violating its zero-tolerance policy after he allegedly grabbed a student. He would go on to coach at Texas Tech for almost seven seasons before retiring in 2008. Earlier, then-Washington Post reporter John Feinstein had written a book about the Indiana program. In a 2008 interview with NPR, he'd said the coach had a complicated legacy. When he was good, there was no one better than Bob Knight. He was generous, he cared about his players, he graduated his players, he was the best. When he was bad, there were few worse. Knight paid little attention to criticism, but he did address the issue when he talked to the crowd after a game at Indiana in 1994. He was as profane and blunt as ever. When my time on earth is gone and my activities here are past, I want they bury me upside down and my critics can kiss my Knight was estranged from the university for nearly two decades. and declining health, he moved back to Bloomington, Indiana in 2019. The following year, during halftime of an Indiana game against Purdue, Knight walked onto the court at Assembly Hall to a standing ovation. He didn't speak, but led the crowd in his signature chant. Bob Knight was one of the winningest college coaches of all time with 902 career victories. For NPR News, I'm Pat Bean in Bloomington, Indiana. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. As construction on the billion-dollar South Coast Rail Line nears completion, there are fears that it won't live up to expectations. It's 7.29. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and the Community Advisory Board. If you'd like information about attending, please visit wbur.org slash open meetings. That's wbur.org slash open meetings. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same day and next day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Innuendo in Natick, with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. More people are expected to be allowed to leave Gaza today through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny says they include Americans trapped in Gaza amid the Israel-Hamas war. People allowed to leave include about 400 people with American passports, according to a list provided by Hamas. The list also includes people with passports from other countries, including Croatia, Mexico, and the Netherlands. And it is a time-consuming process at the border, so it's not clear everyone on the list from today will actually get to Egypt. Several hundred people crossed into Egypt yesterday, including foreigners and dozens of wounded Palestinians. President Biden says the U.S. is working with regional partners to get more people out while getting additional humanitarian aid in. The House is expected to vote today on billions of dollars in U.S. aid to Israel. 
Republicans want the money for Israel to be approved separately from a larger request made by President Biden that includes funding for Ukraine. Here's House Speaker Mike Johnson speaking to Fox's Sean Hannity. We're ready to send over a uh, sole legislation that would focus on Israel that is paid for. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the standalone aid is dead on arrival in the Senate. The Federal Reserve is leaving interest rates unchanged after wrapping up its latest policy meeting. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBWAR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A family from Medway is hopeful it'll soon be able to make it out of Gaza. Some foreign nationals are finally being allowed to leave. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports the family was not able to make it into Egypt yesterday, but is waiting at the border again today. In an audio message recorded last night, Abu Dokal said although his family was not among those who made it through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt yesterday, they remain hopeful. So we hope this continues. Uh, we hope... Our turn will come in soon uh, among those that are leaving, and um, we trust that our State Department is doing its best um, to get us out of Gaza uh, before it's too late. The State Department did not respond to requests for comment. Okal, his wife Wafa Abu Zaydah, and their one-year-old son have been trapped in Gaza since the war began almost a month ago. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker. The superintendent of Boston Public Schools is defending a decision to put English language learners in general education classrooms. That'll begin next fall. Superintendent Mary Skipper says the plan aligns with state and federal expectations. Eight of the 13 members of the district's English Learners Task Force resigned this week over the new policy. They told the Boston Globe the new policy will lead to higher dropout rates. There is now a sixth confirmed case of West Nile virus in Massachusetts. Officials say the latest exposure involves a man in his 70s and likely happened in Middlesex County. The Department of Public Health reports the risk for the virus remains moderate in greater Boston. The agency says the virus will stick around until the first hard frost of the season. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Celtics remain undefeated so far this season. They beat the Indiana Pacers 155-104 to last night at the Garden for their fourth straight win. The season's next game is Saturday against the Nets in Brooklyn. Tonight, the Bruins are back on the ice as they host the Toronto Maple Leafs. Sunny in upper 40s today, mostly clear in mid-30s tonight. Sunny in mid-50s to end the week tomorrow. It's 34 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The House of Representatives voted last night not to expel Republican Representative George Santos. Members of his own party from his home state of New York had filed a motion to kick him out after federal prosecutors added more fraud charges to his rap sheet. Still, the move to expel him, followed by the decision to reject the attempt, reveals simmering frustrations among Republicans. NPR's Eric McDaniel has been following all of it. All right, so Eric, the House uh, voted down to expel Santos and they decided not to censure another member. That was Democrat Rashida Tlaib. I mean, it sounds like everyone's getting along in the House. I'm not so sure that's exactly right. But with this Santos stuff, there's a lot more going on here than just the tensions among House Republicans, right? Even many of the members who voted against removing Santos, including a big number of Democrats, probably might not want him as a colleague, but they do want to let the legal process and their own congressional ethics process play out. The New York Republicans, these are swing district folks who put the resolution forward, wanted to show that they're stewards of good government after the chaos of the past few weeks and the speaker fight. Now they and other House Republicans seem to want to get back to focusing on legislating. Oh, okay. So are they are they ready to do that? Well, the folks I've talked to are happy to be back debating the substance of things rather than just trying to find a leader and credit where credit is due. House Republicans were unanimous last night in funding Congress's own budget. But things only get thornier going forward, right? They've got to compromise not just with each other, which is no small task, as we've seen, but also with the Senate, including Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, if they want to pass, say, aid to Israel. All right. So beyond the George Santos votes, uh, where else is this tension playing out? Well, like you mentioned, they voted to table a motion last night by Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene that would have published one of punished one of her Democratic colleagues. And when that vote was over, Greene went on social media to name and shame 20 some of her Republican colleagues who didn't support her push. So I'm not going to tell you that no one is frustrated in the House caucus right now, but other folks I talked to are very much in wait and see mode. Here's what Anthony Desposito, a New York Republican, told me. At least on the surface, it seems like everyone's getting along. So yeah. <laughs> at least on the surface. He led the charge to try and remove George Santos, but even he's ready to move past internal Republican fights. So the tensions are there, yeah, but like the congressman said, for now, they remain largely below the surface. Below the surface. So how quickly could they go above the surface? Well, they're due to vote on this Israel aid package sometime this week. And as Speaker Mike Johnson and the House drew it up, that's a standalone bill. So that puts them in direct confrontation with Republican and Democratic leaders in the Senate. That would be Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, both of whom want to see a combined aid bill. That means money for the war in Ukraine, money for Taiwan and the South Pacific, and even money for the U.S.-Mexico border. They're going to have to decide among themselves, House Republicans, whether to compromise with each other, figure out how to iron out things between the absolutists in the House Freedom Caucus and the other kind of more pragmatic, lifelong institutional members, whether they're going to compromise with each other or give in to those hardliners who would rather see nothing pass than to make a deal. Some of the same folks who were at the heart of ousting the last speaker, Kevin McCarthy, will see them probably right at the center of this fight, too. All right, that's NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel. Eric, thanks for keeping up on this. Thanks, A. A lot of birds in the U.S. and Canada are named after people. There's Stellar's Jay, Cooper's Hawk, Anna's Hummingbird, and dozens more. 
all of those familiar bird names will soon change. NPR's Neil Greenfield-Boyce says the birding community wants to leave some of these names in the past, and it's just part of an effort to make birding more welcoming to everybody. Robert Driver is a scientist who's long been interested in bird names, how those names can come from past events and people, and how they may not really fit the bird. Like the palm warbler. This yellowish songbird doesn't live in palm trees. It was named by an 18th century European naturalist who saw one that was just collected on an island. That's the type of name that bothers me, that we have to all use this name, which is based on this one moment, which has nothing to do with the bird. So in 2017, when violence broke out in Charlottesville over a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, he wondered. Were any of these birds named after people who served in the Confederate Army? It turns out, yes. A bird had been named for a Confederate Army general, John Porter McCown. Driver thought it should be changed, so he put in a proposal to the American Ornithological Society. It's in charge of the official list of English-language bird names in North America. It sometimes renames birds, usually for scientific reasons, but Driver's proposal got rejected. That's kind of how it sat for a little bit. Then, in 2020, came the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. That same day, a white woman in New York City's Central Park called the police on a black birder. More birders began to think about social justice in their community. People signed letters, petitions. That bird, named after the Confederate general, quickly got officially renamed. It's now the thick-billed longspur. Which is a descriptive name that everyone can relate to and not feel bad about saying that name. Colleen Handel is the president of the American Ornithological Society. She says scientists prize stability when it comes to names, but... We've come to understand that there are certain names that have offensive or derogatory connotations that cause pain to people. And that's why a group called Bird Names for Birds urged the society to revisit all bird names that honored people. Ken Kaufman was initially against the idea of changing so many names. He's written bird guides and has used these names for six decades. I knew the young people who had started this bird names for birds movement, and I tried to talk some sense into them. Instead, they convinced him. He realized if the society tried to reconsider one bird name at a time. We would just become sort of the, the morality police for people who lived two centuries ago. There'd be endless arguments. Now that the society has decided to change them all, he says birders will get to have arguments they should enjoy about which features of a bird to highlight. Erica Knoll is a biologist at Trent University. She recently was watching a bird that has special feathers that allow it to make a haunting sound as it flies through the air. It's called Wilson's Snipe. I thought, oh, what a terrible name, Wilson Snipe. I mean, Wilson was the father of modern ornithology in North America, but this bird has so many other evocative characteristics. She thinks people surely will be able to come up with a better name. The Society's renaming project will start next year and will solicit input from the public. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News.
Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the latest on efforts to rescue hostages in Gaza and to get humanitarian aid into the region amid Israel's bombardment. Clear skies today. Temperatures may reach the upper 40s. Those fall to the mid-30s tonight. Skies stay clear overnight, and it'll be a sunny Friday tomorrow in the mid-50s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni, restaurant, and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com A new apprenticeship program aims to create more career pathways for Boston electrical workers. The program is a joint effort between the Electricians Union, Local 103, IBEW, and Massport. The organizations say those trained through the program will have direct pathways to jobs that will help improve Massport's infrastructure. Those include careers at Logan Airport and the Port of Boston. Norwood-based Pizzeria Uno opened more stores than it closed in the past fiscal year. The company says it's the first time that's happened in more than 15 years. The pizza chain attributes the growth to its focus on smaller footprints, including restaurants and hotels. A building in the Back Bay has sold for nearly $100 million, nearly double what it sold for more than two decades ago. The 11-story office building is on Boylston Street across from the Prue. The building was purchased by a group that manages investments for, the, for Cutter's royal family. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. This is W.B. War's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. South Coast Rail is a project 30 years in the making. It'll connect Boston with New Bedford, Taunton, and Fall River by train. But there have been endless delays. W.B. War's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports that in New Bedford, some still doubt the MBTA commuter rail line will ever become a reality. Others question how many people will use it and whether it'll be financially viable. Right now, there's only one way to get from New Bedford to Boston on mass transit, and it's a bus. Just before 7 a.m., I meet Phil Zoukas. He's at the New Bedford bus terminal with his service dog, waiting to board a Peter Pan bus headed for Boston South Station to get to work. So are you familiar with the South Coast Rail Project? Yes, we're long familiar with it. (laughs) Zoukas has lived in New Bedford for a decade. And like many people here, he wonders if the billion-dollar train project will ever be completed. We're still pretty behind the times here, and uh, it would be great to have some means of making this easier for everyone. How often do you think you would use it? Well, I'm working four days a week now, and, and that's to Boston. I would definitely use it at least four days a week, and maybe on the weekends if there was an option. State Senator Mark Montigny of New Bedford has been advocating to bring the commuter rail to his city since the 1990s. He's always pictured the train serving people like Zoukas, who work in Boston. Montigny saw commuter rail service as a springboard for economic prosperity in the region. The wishful thinking and the hope back then was, 
if you build it, they will come. Who are they? Well, companies will come and set up shop because now their employees can go back and forth. That vision has shifted over the years. New Bedford Mayor John Mitchell says the city's economy has been evolving thanks to investment in the downtown area and improving the port. He sees the South Coast Rail as another tool to make New Bedford a more appealing place for people to live, work, and visit. It's not to say that it is uh, somehow going to usher in greater prosperity on, on, all on its own. I've never believed that, but I believe it's a, it's a good thing overall, and that's why I've gotten behind it. Longtime New Bedford resident Eric Andrade is not sure bringing commuter rail to the city is good for everyone. He's seen rents and home prices rising in recent years, especially since rail construction began in 2020. It's great to increase the transportation, but if it's for the community, when you're saying community, what community are you talking about? Are you talking about the community that's pre-existed here? Are you talking about the community that will be attracted to move here? But to some in the transportation industry, dreams of what the South Coast Rail could achieve have been marred by time and expense. The T keeps failing to get projects right, and remote work has changed commuting needs. Former Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi is a supporter of expanding regional rail, but he has his doubts about the South Coast Rail project. What I worry about is building rail systems that end up disappointing people, which is what I think is likely to happen here. The train won't be much faster than driving. The trip from New Bedford will take roughly 90 minutes and cost about $13 each way. The latest plan called for three trains at morning rush hour and three in the evening. Between those times, trains would run only every few hours or so. And trains might not run on the weekends. Aloisi says that schedule is not appealing. Unless you're giving people frequent all-day service, you're not really giving them a service that they're going to want to use. It's just simple as that. If the South Coast Rail fails to attract riders, Aloisi fears other big rail projects, like the proposed electrified route from Stoughton to Taunton, might never come together. Meanwhile, crews are still working to finish the future New Bedford rail station. Right now, there's a white concrete platform with beams that will eventually support a roof, sticking up like twigs. Passenger service was supposed to start by the end of this year, but the T announced another delay in September. There's more construction to do and safety tests after that. Phil Zoukas and his fellow commuters to Boston will have to wait until at least the summer to board a train here. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, teachers in Portland, Oregon have walked off the job over concerns about large class sizes and salaries that haven't kept up with inflation. The strike is shuttering schools for some 45,000 students. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Fine Arts Boston, presenting Fashioned by Sargent, highlighting over 50 of John Singer Sargent's paintings with dresses and accessories featured in his work. Explore how Sargent used fashion to realize his vision in an exhibition that asks, Who Creates Your Image? on view through January 15th. Tickets at MFA.org. 
Arizona will be a key state in next year's presidential election, and a big divisive issue in the state is immigration. They're just pouring across the border. They're inundating the small cities. Our border is over-militarized, and it's a fabricated problem. How the generation gap affects views of immigration on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. President Biden is calling for a pause in the Israel-Hamas war in order to allow for more time to get hostages out of Gaza and humanitarian aid into the region. Schools in Portland, Oregon will remain closed through the rest of this week amid an ongoing teacher strike. And the Texas Rangers captured their first World Series title in franchise history. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org. Upper 40s today and it'll be sunny. It's 34 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. In Nathan Thrall's new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, The Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy, Thrall tells the story of a bus accident in which six Palestinian kindergartners and a teacher burned to death. One of the children is a five-year-old boy named Milad. His father, Abed Salama, is the main narrator of this story as he searches for his son in the wake of the accident. There were people who said that a lot of children were taken to an Israeli army base close to the accident, but it didn't have a permit to enter there or even reach the area. Some people said he might be in health centers. A minute on this day was like waiting for hours. I felt like my son was close to me. He was close to you in the end. Yeah, yeah. His son was in a hospital morgue in Ramallah in the West Bank, just feet away from where he sat. Nathan Thrall doesn't just trace Salama's search for his son. He also profiles the many people, both Palestinian and Jewish, who come into contact with that accident. The accident really embodied the entire Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Through the story of these dead children, their parents, the emergency responders, and the civilians who jump into action— Thrall paints a brutally honest picture of life under Israeli authority for both Jewish citizens and Palestinians who live under occupation. Why did you choose this story on this one piece of land with all of these people who live in or around Jerusalem? One is that I live uh, right next to where these children and their parents and the teachers live, who live in my same city um, but live an entirely different existence. Half have blue IDs, residents of uh, Jerusalem, which entitles them to travel across the checkpoint that separates them from the rest of the city. And their relatives who live in the same community who have green IDs. Green IDs are issued for Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank and Gaza, and they bar access to Israel without explicit permission. This entire enclave, when you go into it, You can't tell the difference between the part that Israel has officially annexed and the part that uh, is officially unannexed and part of the West Bank. It's all a group of different people, all relatives living in this one community with very different rights as a result of the color of their ID cards. And that had enormous repercussions on this day when a tragedy occurred. 
Thrall spoke to everyone who came in contact with that accident and the way it impacted both Jewish people and Palestinians. And there was no one who I spoke to more than Abed. And Abed, what made you decide to spend time and talk to Nathan, tell your story, and be part of this book? So when he told me maybe uh, your story will make uh, a difference about our Palestinian uh, issue, so because of that, I decided to share him everything. What was it like to read this book? I, I like it because uh, he, he writes from the bottom of his heart. And when I read the article, I, I read it in English. I, I'm not strong in English, but I understand every word because he's telling the truth. The accident happened over a decade ago. But Thrall says it is as relevant today as it was then. The kids were only on this field trip in bad weather because there was no playground accessible to all of them near where they lived. The most important factor in determining whether these people had public schools, playgrounds, paved roads, sidewalks, are determined by the fact that they're Palestinian. And these kids had to take this circuitous route, snaking through Jerusalem and the West Bank to reach a play area. And the very route that it takes was determined with one overriding logic, how to keep as many Palestinians as possible out of the heart of Jerusalem while relinquishing as little land as possible by the Israeli state. The accident was near Israeli fire stations and visible from a military checkpoint. Some of the bystanders said the soldiers appeared frightened. And it was more than 30 minutes before the first Israeli fire truck came. It was 25 minutes before a single ambulance came, and he was helpless to do anything. And the point of this is not... Israelis made a decision to let these children die. The, the point is that this entire infrastructure is set up to neglect hundreds of thousands of people who live on the other side of this wall. What do you want people to take from this book? The main thing I want is for people to feel viscerally what it is to live in this place for both Jews and Palestinians. I feel that we have spent too much time speaking in abstractions. Two states, one state, confederation. And I want us to move away from abstractions and to focus on the reality of these people's lives. Now, we spoke before the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th and before Israel's response in Gaza. So I called Thrall back. And he told me the reception for his book had changed. I've had events canceled in five cities, one of them by the UK police, who were targeting anything with Palestinian in the title. I wasn't alone. Other events were also canceled in the UK. An entire conference was shut down. It's an atmosphere of total intolerance for any sympathy for uh Palestinians living under occupation. And it's quite telling to me that even a book that is portraying the everyday lives of Palestinians and Jews living under Israeli rule would be targeted. And 
you know, if a book like that is being targeted, we're in an atmosphere where virtually nothing can be said. And this is precisely the kind of conversations we need to be having in order to address the deep roots of this recurrent bloodshed. That was Nathan Thrall and Abed Salama. Thrall's new book is called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, The Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Participant with the new film Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in an impoverished town in Mexico who tries a new method of unlocking his students' potential, starring Eugenio Derbez in Theaters Friday. From United Airlines, committed to achieving net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 without relying on carbon offsets. Learn more at united.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israeli ground troops advance toward Gaza City as President Biden urges a pause in the fighting to get hostages out and humanitarian aid into the region. It's Thursday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, several hundred people were able to leave Gaza yesterday through a border crossing with Egypt. Safe passage for wounded Palestinians and foreign nationals to exit Gaza. Has started. More people are expected to be allowed to leave today. Meanwhile, those who remain trapped inside Gaza are struggling to survive. People are fighting for some bread. For people to fight over bread, can you even imagine the situation we're living in? Also, what's been learned about the gunmen one week after the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine? Plus, two sons of former President Donald Trump testify in New York in the family company's civil fraud trial. Sunny in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Israeli military continues to attack tunnels used by Hamas in Gaza. NPR's Jackie Northam reports Israel's effort to destroy the underground network is putting civilians at risk. The Hamas tunnels run for hundreds of miles underneath Gaza and are used by the militants for everything from storing weapons to launching rocket attacks and planning military operations. Israel is pounding Gaza with airstrikes to eliminate the tunnels, but it's civilians who often pay the price. An elite Israeli team has been trained for tunnel combat. Daphna Rishimon Barak, an underground warfare expert, says they will have limited communications underground and face booby traps. So we're looking at one-on-one combat, which is very different than what, you know, that what modern warfare really is about. This is a return to medieval ways of, of fighting. What could further complicate Israel's targeting the tunnels are the nearly 240 hostages being held by Hamas likely in the tunnels. Jackie Northam, NPR News. President Biden is once again calling for a pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas 
As Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports, the president made the remarks in response to an activist who interrupted him during an event in Minneapolis on Wednesday. Biden was speaking to around 200 people at a private fundraiser when Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg got up from her seat and demanded that he pressure Israel to stop its siege of Gaza. Rosenberg's group, Jewish Voice for Peace, posted video online. The clip did not include Biden's response, but a pool reporter traveling with the president noted that Biden said, quote, I think we need a pause. A pause means give time to get the prisoners out. The president's comments coincided with a large demonstration in support of Palestinian rights about a mile from the event. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. Congressman Ken Buck has announced that he will not seek re-election next year. Speaking to CNN, the Colorado Republican criticized his colleagues who still refused to condemn the January 6th insurrection. Buck also predicted that his party will look different once the current election cycle is over. I don't think Donald Trump will be our next president, and I don't think that that the Republicans in the House will be bound to his uh, ideology and and to his priorities. And and I think that will uh, free up a lot of people. Buck's announcement came just hours after another veteran House Republican, Kay Granger, confirmed that she also would not seek re-election next year. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A judge says the state can move forward with its plan to waitlist families trying to get into the state shelter system. The state says the system is running out of space and funds. As WBWAR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, there are just about 100 spots left. The class action suit was brought by families on the brink of homelessness. They argued the state didn't provide 90 days notice to lawmakers about major changes to the shelter program. But a superior court judge ruled those families don't have standing. And lawmakers have known about the situation and haven't acted. Orrin Selstrom of Lawyers for Civil Rights represented the families. The silver lining is that it shines a light once again on the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding and on the need for the legislature to act quickly to preserve emergency shelter. As of now, the state is not setting up a place for families on the wait list to stay until shelter units become available. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The Massachusetts Secretary of Veterans Affairs says the mass shooting in Maine highlights mental health issues, including those facing veterans. Gunman Robert Card was flagged by family and colleagues concerned about his mental health prior to last week's violence. Card was an Army reservist. Massachusetts Secretary of Veteran Affairs John Santiago told WBUR's Radio Boston that officials need to increase their safety training efforts. What can we do to talk to them about safe storage? access to firearms, uh, how they interface with their families and other folks. So we're committed to looking into that and supporting the veteran community and, and perhaps enhancing training for our veteran service officers. President Biden and the First Lady will visit Lewiston, Maine tomorrow to talk with the families of the 18 people killed and 13 people wounded in last week's shooting. The Boston City Council will consider a plan to reinvest money collected from parking meters into the neighborhoods where they're located. The plan was brought forward by Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. The Boston Herald reports he wants to establish a pilot for the program in Roslindale Village. That's where the city plans to install new parking meters. 
The Boston Public Library is checking out more than books these days. It's now creating a spice library. The BPL is collecting unopened dried spices and herbs to be donated to people who need them. Stephanie Chase is the library's nutritional literacy coordinator. She says the donation program fills an often overlooked but important need. Because as you know, spices are very pricey um, and they are non-perishable. So it made sense that we ask people, we ask the public to donate spices because they're an integral part of eating, cultural identity, creativity, nutrition. Ten branches across the city are now accepting spice donations. They'll be accepted through next April. It's 807 We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Make it four wins in a row for the Celtics. They routed the Indiana Pacers last night at the Garden. The final was 155-104. to The Seas will visit the Brooklyn Nets on Saturday. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will skate against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Sunny today and in the mid-40s, it'll be clear overnight and get down to the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-50s, sunny on Saturday and near 60. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. As Israel intensifies its military operations in Gaza, death feels close by for the people who are trapped there. The Israeli government has warned the people in Gaza, where Hamas is based, that it would respond with force to the deadly Hamas attack on southern Israel last month. And it has. The Israeli government urged civilians in the north to leave, to move south. But many people in northern Gaza say they have no way to leave and nowhere to go. And now the Gaza Health Ministry says more than 8,700 people have been killed there. Against that backdrop, our co-host Leila Fadel brings us this story of a student in Gaza who is trying to stay alive. This week, we introduced you to Shema Ahmed. She's 20 and is living under those airstrikes in the north of Gaza. Now she says she fears Israeli troops are closing in. Hello, Leila. This is Shema. As you hear... The situation now may not be the best situation to record anything ever. I don't even know how long I'm going to be able to stay in touch. Her voice memos pop up on my phone in batches. Under Israeli bombardment, communications go dark, return, and go dark again. So she records them and waits for the minute or two of cell service she gets to send them out. I would have to hang outside the window so that I'll get some service and my messages would reach my family who have been forced to go south, we weren't able to because we have nowhere to go. The Israeli military told the over one million Palestinians in the north to leave and go south for their safety. Some did and were still killed in bombardments. Others couldn't or wouldn't, afraid they'd never be allowed to return. The UN says that more than a million people are displaced in the Gaza Strip. My cousin just went out this morning and he saw the troops from a distance and he told us how they looked. They're definitely very scary and the bombs are just getting closer and louder. Just a few weeks ago, Ahmed was studying computer engineering at her university. 
I loved my friends, I loved the labs, I loved the professors, I just loved everything about it. When this attack started, I carried my books, I carried my stuff, and I was like, we're gonna return after like a few days. But then, we didn't move once, we didn't move twice, we got displaced about seven times. A house we were close to got bombed three times. So every time that happens, obviously you're lifted off the ground, your nostrils get filled with dirt and fine cement, and your ears start ringing, and rocks fly through the windows, glass is shattered. When you wake up from the shock, you basically start running. She says she misses her home in Shajaiya, a town close to the border with Israel. It is a very beautiful neighborhood. One thing we did over the summer was redecorate a room. My sister Dua and I had saved up. We gave it the best makeover and we were so excited to have finally made it happen. And right now our house has been reduced to rubble. Everything we know is now gone. My university, gone. My neighborhood, gone. There is no food, no water. My cousins, in the morning, they go outside. This is just um, a usual sound. It's not even close. Um, anyways, my cousins leave every morning around five in the morning to take their turn in the line for bread. And people are fighting for some bread. And that is just so miserable to see. For people to fight over bread, can you even imagine the situation we're living in? It's just, I swear, it... we barely have water to clean ourselves. There is no food, no water, electricity. No, that's a pleasure. We barely charge our phones using the solar panel that our neighbor has. It is a struggle to get the basic human needs. And now, today, we've heard about a new massacre. When she sent this voice memo, Israel had dropped bombs on a refugee camp. The attack left a massive crater flattened buildings. The next day, Israel hit the camp again. The Israeli military says the strikes killed two Hamas commanders. There are videos of people digging through the rubble for their loved ones with their bare hands. This is a call. This is a call for anyone who can anything to do, just anything, to stop whatever we're going through because it's really just so hard to live through. Oh my god. If I want to describe what the situation is like, I would say it is basically a living hell. I'm just so tired. She sends one last message. Right now, as I recorded to you, our area is being really bombed. We're preparing our things. We might be displaced again. Um, so, um... I'm not sure how long I'm going to be able to stay in contact if we moved. We're going to have to move in between the tanks so that we don't get shot at or bombed at on the way. At 3.28 p.m. on Tuesday, I lose contact with Shema Ahmed. And as this airs, I still can't get in touch. Yesterday, a few hundred foreign passport holders and some seriously injured Palestinians made it through the gate out of Gaza and into Egypt. (laughs) 
The International Committee of the Red Cross is among the relief organizations that have been trying to get trucks filled with food, water, and medicine into Gaza by way of the Rafah crossing. Alona Sinenko is a regional spokeswoman with the ICRC, and she's on the line with us now from Jerusalem. Uh, we just listened to one woman tell us about her family's trials and her own under Israeli bombardment. Where does the Red Cross see the greatest need right now? Well, as it is clear from the testimony that we have just heard, the needs are absolutely everywhere. And of course, for us, the main priority is life-saving. So right now we have our surgical team uh, that is operating on the wounded patient. We have managed to send some trucks with medical supplies that we have delivered to the hospitals. But it's just a drop in the ocean compared to the immense needs that we are seeing everywhere. This morning I spoke with our surgeon uh, who is operating there day and night and he describes the horrific wounds, the burned wounds that children here receiving. And uh, also many children are deeply traumatized and they lost their entire families. What can the Red Cross do to get more aid into Gaza? Is there anything at all that the Red Cross can do? Well, we are doing everything that we possibly can, and we are talking to all the parties, to all the stakeholders who uh, can facilitate the delivery of these medical supplies. We have more supplies and more staff on standby ready to get in, and it is absolutely urgent that uh, a constant flow of humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza uh, becomes, because this is the several trucks here and there are not going to solve uh, the massive humanitarian problems that we are seeing right now. When we speak with our surgeons today, they're already telling us that they're running dangerously low on the dressing material, on the anesthetic drugs. So it is absolutely imperative that the authorities, that all the stakeholders, they uh, facilitate the delivery of humanitarian assistance. I know the ICRC president called it a catastrophic failing that civilians can't find safe haven under Israel's bombardment and that an adequate humanitarian response just wasn't possible. Uh, what do you need most to get food, water and medicine in? What's the one thing you need to, to get those things in where they need to be? Well, of course, uh, we do need access and we need safety uh, for our uh, teams to be able to operate, uh, to be able to access people most in need in all the areas across Gaza, uh, because it is true that uh, when the bombs continue to fall, it is also impossible for our teams uh, to do their jobs. Now, the Israeli government has been uh, very critical of the International Red Cross. Uh, yesterday, Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, said he was demanding that the ICRC visit more than 200 hostages held by Hamas. And, and Cohen said that if your organization fails, it has no right to exist. Was there a response from the ICRC to that statement? Well, for us, it is a priority to get access and to visit all the hostages because uh, what their families are currently going through, the amount of suffering that uh, they endure is also unimaginable. I think anybody can imagine the nightmare that these uh, families are now going through. And we have been also constantly calling on the authorities on the Hamas authorities to give us the access so that we can 
provide medicine, that we can uh, give news to the families of the hostages. It is a major priority, but we are a humanitarian organization. And just like with delivery of uh, aid, humanitarian assistance to people in Gaza who are trying to survive under bombs, uh, just like visiting uh, Israeli hostages uh, who are uh, without uh, access and without being able to communicate with their families. We cannot do any of that unless we are giving the needed humanitarian space and the access to be able to do our job. We cannot force our way through bombs and uh, we just need all the all the parties to show the goodwill and to and also to respect their obligation under the international humanitarian law. Alona Sinenko is with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Eric Trump is expected to take the witness stand today in the civil fraud trial that threatens former President Donald Trump's real estate empire. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. Closes November 26th. Learn more at PEM.org. And University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford and online, une.edu. I'm Robin Young. Assault-style weapons have become a common feature in shooting incidents around the country. But in the 1980s, the gun that was getting a lot of attention was the Glock. It was new from top to bottom, and it was sort of pitched as the gun of the future. Our series on the history of gun culture in America continues next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Highs in the upper 40s today under clear skies. Still clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-30s. Sunny tomorrow and warmer with highs in the mid-50s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. New York Times book critic Dwight Gardner comes to City Space next Tuesday, November 7th. He'll discuss his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen. Join us for a conversation about the joys of eating and reading. Get details and tickets at wbur.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways in select theaters tomorrow, everywhere November 10th. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Schools in Portland, Oregon are closed for a second day today as a teacher strike continues. The strike is the first for Portland Public Schools, which serves around 45,000 students. The Portland Association of Teachers have been negotiating with the district since their last contract expired in June. Here's Renard Adams from the Portland Public Schools bargaining team. We have already offered a cost of living increase that is more than our increase in revenue. We know the union's bargaining team believes that it's insufficient, but we cannot responsibly accept their proposed 23% increase. Lisa Balick, a reporter with KOIN-TV in Portland, Oregon, is with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Michelle. Lisa, just tell us a little bit more, if you would, about the conditions that led to the strike, or at least the conditions that the teachers say led to the strike. There's really just some key issues. Obviously, higher pay. They want smaller class sizes and more planning time. You know, we talk about the pay. The district is offering currently a 4.5% the first year, 3% each of the next two years. Teachers want almost double that. And what are you hearing from teachers? They are strong in support of a strike action. There were hundreds that turned out for a rally yesterday. They believe the district really can find the money. It's about $200 million by making cuts and further depleting the reserve fund. Now, the president, in fact, of the National Education Association was here in Portland yesterday for rallies. It's really a sign we may be seeing more of these strikes around the country. You know, in other parts of the country, we've also heard that it's not just the pay, but it's also the working conditions, like the conditions that the buildings are in, for example, or things like that, lack of heat, lack of AC. Is that part of this as well? Definitely. These are some of the issues they are discussing at the table, for sure. Now, school closures, look, are very disruptive to students and their families. Do you have a sense of, I know this is early days, do you have any sense of, you know, how the broader community feels about this? Yes, I have been talking to a lot of parents as they were getting ready for this because the teachers had given their 10-day notice um, and there was a sense this was going to happen even before that. Families really want more for the teachers and uh, having the kids home during the pandemic I think they're painfully aware of how much work it is to help kids with their academics, behavior issues, mental health issues. Very grateful that the teachers take on that responsibility of caring for many, many students in their day. And say a bit more, if you would, about what officials from the Portland Public Schools are saying. They were saying at their news conferences yesterday that to meet the teacher demands, they would have to make massive cuts, laying off teachers, shortening the school year possibly, Even the governor, who is a labor supporter, says the teacher demands would send the district off a financial cliff. The district is blaming the state for not giving them enough money for education. But what happened in Oregon back in 1990 is that voters passed a measure to limit the property taxes, which essentially pushed the biggest burden paying for schools to the state through income taxes. So what's next? Do we have a sense of when the two sides might return to the bargaining table? I talked with both sides, and they both tell me that Friday they will both be at the bargaining table. But essentially what this means is no school for a second day today or on Friday, which was a scheduled day off. That is Lisa Balick of KOIN-TV in Portland. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Michelle. China held a muted cremation ceremony for its former premier today. That contrasted with the outpouring of public grief and shock over his sudden death last week at the age of 68. NPR's Emily Fang tells us why his death has moved so many people. 
In life, China's former premier Li Keqiang was largely overlooked. A bland and cautious premier eclipsed by the force of the country's current leader, Xi Jinping. But in death, Li has become a stand-in for expressing discontent, a safe way to contrast his more reform-minded policy stances with the political control of Xi's. And so, since Li's death from a heart attack, thousands of people have been streaming to his birthplace every day in his home province of Anhui in eastern China. This woman laying flowers says the people want to give him a good send-off, proper mourning for at least a week to show him how they feel. Like all the people in this piece, NPR is not using their names to protect them from possible retribution. Because Beijing is careful about how to commemorate Li. They want to show him respect without encouraging public grief. And Beijing has not scheduled a memorial or a public funeral for Li. Flower sellers are doing brisk business. Carnations are now piled several feet high outside Li's childhood home. This man says he came because Li was a good premier for the people, and that's why he's chosen to stand in a line stretching around the city block for his chance to give the former premier flowers. China's ruling Communist Party is ultra-careful about commemorating its former leaders because they prompt reflection on the current leadership. The death of another leader, Hu Yaobang in the 1980s, for example, unleashed protests against the excesses of the party's rule. Li was no revolutionary, but as an idealistic university student in the 1980s, he rubbed elbows with democracy activists and liberal student intellectuals. And his turn into a party functionary struck some as a waste of potential. As night falls, a police officer in Li's hometown tells people to stop filming the line of public mourners. Get out of here now, he orders them. No one listens. Videos online of the mourners are quickly censored on China's internet. But for this week, the life of Li Keqiang is on the minds of many in the country. Emily Fang, NPR News. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, it's no secret that Americans are unhappy with Congress. And according to the Pew Research Center, 87% of the country says they support implementing congressional term limits. But the prospects of that happening are a long shot, and some experts say that is a very good thing. To hear that story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. One week after the mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine, we get the latest on what's known about the shooter and how families of victims are coping from a reporter for the Portland Press-Herald. It's 829.
At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt, to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station, and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Several hundred people with American passports are among those hoping to cross from Gaza into Egypt today amid the war between Israel and Hamas. They're among those on a list of people authorized to leave, according to the Hamas-Gaza Border Authority. Hundreds of people crossed into Egypt yesterday, including dozens of wounded Palestinians. President Biden says the U.S. has been working with its regional partners to get more people out of Gaza. I personally spent a lot of time speaking with the Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel and the President Sisi of Egypt and others to make sure that we could open this access for people to get out. The President was speaking yesterday in Minnesota. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to return to Israel tomorrow. The Texas Rangers and their fans are celebrating the team's first World Series title. The Rangers beat the Arizona Diamondbacks 5-0 last night to win the Fall Classic four games to one. Texas fan Richard Hubbard traveled from Fort Worth to Phoenix for Game 5. I, I couldn't believe I was here watching it in person. It was, it was the coolest moments of my life. The Rangers' Corey Seager was named series' most valuable player. The Rangers won 11 consecutive road playoff games. That's a record for Major League Baseball. Dow futures are up 162 points. This is NPR News. Hall of Fame basketball coach Bob Knight has died. He was 83 years old. Knight's family did not give a cause of death. Knight was one of college basketball's winningest coaches. He led the Indiana Hoosiers to three national championships and coached the 1984 U.S. men's basketball team that won an Olympic gold medal. Regulators in California are pushing back on a proposal from Pacific Gas and Electric aimed at preventing its power lines from sparking wildfires. PG&E wants to bury thousands of miles of electrical lines at a cost of billions of dollars. Kevin Stark with member station KQED says regulators are calling that plan too costly for consumers. California's largest utility wants to raise rates on its customers to pay for burying its lines. State regulators have asked them to put a protective cover on many of the lines instead. It's cheaper, but insulated lines can still spark wildfires. PG&E's equipment ignited some of the state's biggest and deadliest fires in recent years. State Commissioner John Reynolds said PG&E has struggled to bury even small stretches of power lines in the past. A PG&E failure to meet the plans as you've proposed them will result in customers paying for work that doesn't get done. The utility says it has more than doubled its pace of burying lines underground over the last few years. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Stark in San Francisco. I'm Dave Mattingly, NPR News in Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Commuter rail service to the South Coast may finally begin next year. The project will connect Boston with New Bedford, Fall River, and Taunton. But as WBWAR's Andrea Pardomo-Hernandez reports, some transit advocates worry it won't draw as many riders as once hoped. A lot has changed since South Coast Rail was first conceived three decades ago. 
It's uncertain if the train will help the local economy and whether New Bedford commuters will opt for an hour-and-a-half train to Boston over driving. Former Transportation Secretary Jim Aloisi has concerns about the project. My worry is that we've spent, you know, a billion or more dollars to get to a point on a phase one basis where we're not going to give people the kind of service that's going to attract ridership. If the train doesn't attract enough riders, Aloisi says that could hurt other projects, like an electrified route from Stoughton to Taunton. The T says trains will start running to New Bedford next summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The Healy administration is giving more than $5 million to healthcare organizations that help people without homes recover after a hospital visit. The new pilot program will give people a safe space to recover and try to connect them to long-term housing. The state says the program will also improve hospital discharge rates and reduce how long people stay in the hospital. The person suspected of killing a student from Salem State University is due in district court today. Police arrested 18-year-old Masail Peña-Sanella on murder charges last night. Investigators say he shot and killed freshman Carl Hens Belliard not far from the Salem State campus Tuesday night. Belliard was from Worcester and played basketball for Salem State. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity, because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics remain unbeaten so far this season. They beat the Indiana Pacers 155-104 to last night at the Garden. The Seas will visit the Brooklyn Nets on Saturday. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will host the Toronto Maple Leafs. Sunny in upper 40s today, mostly clear in mid-30s tonight. Sunny in mid-50s to end the week tomorrow. It's 34 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. More people are expected to be allowed to leave Gaza today through the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. Several hundred, including foreigners and severely wounded Gazans, got out yesterday. And President Joe Biden says the U.S. is working with regional partners to get more people out and desperately needed aid in. We're continuing working to significantly step up the flow of critical humanitarian assistance into Gaza. The number of trucks entering Gaza continues to increase significantly, but we still have a long way to go. All this while Israel continues pressing further into Gaza in its war against Hamas and as international condemnation of civilian casualties, especially from airstrikes in the Jabalia refugee camp, continues to grow. Joining us now from Tel Aviv to tell us more about all this is NPR's Alyssa Nadroni. Alyssa, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. So can we just start with the people who are getting out? What can you tell us about who they are? Yeah, so today the list of people allowed to leave includes about 400 people with American passports, according to a list provided by Hamas. The list also includes people with passports from other countries, including Croatia, Mexico, and the Netherlands. And it is a time-consuming process at the border, so it's not clear everyone on the list from today will actually get to Egypt. 
Yesterday, we saw the first people to leave Gaza since the conflict began. There were critically injured Palestinians, like you said. There were a handful of American aid workers and about 300 people with foreign passports from places like Australia, Bulgaria, and Jordan. Our producer, Anas Baba, was there on the Gaza side of the crossing this morning and talked with Yumna Shafi, who was there at the crossing with her mom, Sina. Some of my friends are in there in Gaza and um, my family's there, so I'm kind of scared and sad, but I'm also happy to leave because I'm going to be able to be safe. So we know a little bit more about who's getting out. What about relief supplies going in for the people who desperately need it? Yeah, there have been an increased number of aid trucks allowed into Gaza in recent days. At first, you know, it was just 20 or 30 trucks with things like medical supplies and food, but that has more than doubled. Israel has agreed to allow 100 trucks of humanitarian aid a day. Aid organizations state it's still not enough, you know, given how dire the situation is there. I talked with Heba TB about this. She is the country director of the NGO CARE in the West Bank and Gaza. And she's been talking to our colleagues in Gaza who are sheltering in crowded homes, sometimes with up to 100 people in one house. They are running out of water and they are running out of food. My colleague mentioned that yesterday they had the last bread that they tried to save for the kids since two days before. And Alyssa, tell us, where does Israel's ground assault stand? So according to the Israeli military, ground forces pushed further into Gaza. They are now in the outskirts of Gaza City. Before the war, that city had a population of about half a million people in it. The Israeli military for weeks has told civilians to leave the north of Gaza and head south, but the UN estimates there are still 300,000 Palestinians there. And Israel has said again and again, they believe that Hamas is operating extensively in tunnels underground under very densely populated areas, under hospitals, under places like the Jabalia refugee camp, which they struck repeatedly. And as long as they believe Hamas is doing that, the Israeli military says they're going to continue to go after what they see as legitimate targets, despite this growing international outrage over civilian deaths. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerni. Alyssa, thank you so much for this reporting. Thank you. Two sons of former President Donald Trump are set to take the witness stand in New York today. The New York Attorney General is trying to prove there was a conspiracy to commit repeated business fraud, and Eric and Donald Trump Jr. are defendants in the case. NPR's Andrew Bernstein joins us now to explain the state of the trial. Andrea, Donald Trump Jr. uh, began to testify yesterday. Um, What was he like under oath in, in a courtroom? So on social media and conservative news networks, Don Jr. is an aggressive attack dog. For example, he's called this trial a sham and a kangaroo court. But when he took the witness stand, he cracked jokes and he made the the judge laugh. At one point, the assistant attorney general, Colleen Faherty, rattled off a list of professional accounting organizations and asked if he was involved in any of them. And he said, sounds very exciting, but no. Okay, so what's the significance of his overall testimony? What's the AG trying to prove here? We're now in the fifth week of the trial. And up to now, we've heard mostly about the ways Donald Trump wanted to pump up values to get better loans and insurance rates. As Michael Cohen testified, Trump would say something like, I'm not really worth $4.5 billion, I'm worth $6 billion. And then Cohen and others understood it was their job to, quote, reverse engineer property values to get the numbers up to that $6 billion. But there are a lot of years after Trump became president when he wasn't so involved. And that's where 
Don Jr. and Eric Trump come in. In early 2017, Donald Trump turned the daily management of the company over to them. We saw a document yesterday that showed Don Jr. and Eric with power of attorney over all matters, including real estate and banking. We saw Don Jr. has been trustee of the trust that held Donald Trump's company. So the AG wants to prove the conspiracy to inflate values kept going during the period when Donald Trump's sons ran the operation from 2017 until the present. That's potentially a lot more fraud and a lot more money that Trump's will have to pay New York State. Hmm, all right. So how did Donald Trump Jr. react all this? So even though he made his lack of accounting skills a joke, he was trying to distance himself from the fraudulent valuations. He kept saying, I trusted the accountants, I trusted the lawyers. He said, quote, these people had an incredible intimate knowledge and I relied on them. There was one point where the AG's office showed Don Jr. the statement of financial condition for 2017. And it said right at the top, the statement was done at the direction of the trustees, Don Jr. and then CFO Alan Weisselberg. But Don Jr. said he wasn't sure he'd seen it, didn't work on it, that, quote, the accountants worked on it. That's what we pay them for. I expect more of that line of answers today. Okay, what about Eric Trump? What are we going to hear from Eric Trump? Even though he wasn't a trustee of the revocable trust, Don Jr. was, Eric Trump was actually running the company. We've seen evidence of his hand in some of these valuations. So we expect the AG to walk both brothers through all that. Each asset value that was used to get a better bank rate or lower insurance premiums is what the judge has called, quote, ill-gotten gains. That money has to be paid back, potentially hundreds of millions. The Trumps are appealing the judge's partial verdict against them. They say they'll appeal any additional verdict. And the former president, when does he testify? He testifies next week, then Ivanka Trump, and then the AG is expected to wrap up its case. Then it's defense witnesses. We don't know how long. Could be some time before Judge Arthur and Goron delivers his verdict. All right, NPR's Andrew Bernstein, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the next possible moves by policymakers at the U.S. Central Bank. They decided to keep interest rates steady yesterday, but may still increase them in coming months. Clear skies today. Temperatures may reach the upper 40s. Those fall to the mid-30s tonight. Skies stay clear overnight, and it'll be a sunny Friday tomorrow in the mid-50s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. A new report finds that despite the number of new biotech jobs expected in the next decade, there won't be enough workers to fill them. The Massachusetts Biotechnology Education Foundation, also known as MassBioEd, has launched a life sciences career hub to get workers into the industry. WBWAR's Zeninjor and Wemeka reports. The Career Hub will hold workshops, training, job coaching, and career fairs throughout Boston. MassBioEd CEO Sonny Schwartz says there are plenty of people who could work in biotech. 
but they're just unaware of the opportunities or they don't have access or they don't fit the traditional profile that employers seek, um, but employers may be open to those residents if we could connect them. She hopes the hub will serve 3,000 people in its first year and eventually expand statewide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's been one week since a gunman in Lewiston, Maine, killed 18 people and injured 13 others. Journalists there have since uncovered more information about a possible motive and about the victims who lost their lives. Rachel Ohm is a reporter for the Portland Press-Herald, and she joins me now. Good morning. Hi, Rupa. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. You recently co-reported a story about what may have motivated the gunman, Robert Card. Can you tell us what you found? Yeah, so we were able to get some police documents, including an affidavit for Card's arrest before he was found dead. And the affidavit did share some of what possibly motivated him. You know, we found out that um, Schmengi's, the bar and restaurant, that was one of the places targeted. That was a place that was known to him. He had met his ex-girlfriend there at a cornhole tournament, actually. Additionally, he he thought businesses were broadcasting online that he was a pedophile. He, uh, I think, named like four specific businesses that a family member then had mentioned to police, and two of them were the places that were targeted. Obviously, that was not true. Those businesses were not doing that, but that was part of what he thought was going on. You also found records that showed Card had a history of mental health issues and that the police were warned about those issues. Could law enforcement have done something to prevent this from happening? I think that's a question everyone here is asking. I know the governor announced yesterday that she's launching an independent commission to look into what was known beforehand as well as what happened afterwards. So I think that's definitely um, being looked into. And it's the question a lot of people have because he was known. We know that he was known to law enforcement ahead of time. You've been speaking with the families of victims. How are they coping amidst this news that there were warnings about the gunman's mental health? Yeah, it's been tough talking to family and friends. Um, That's a lot of what I have been doing my reporting on. And, um, you know, there's one victim who wasn't even from Maine. He was here visiting his son. Um, I spoke with the sister of one of the women that was killed, and she was with her sister at the bowling alley the night that this happened um, and happened to escape while she said her sister was calling 911 and ended up getting shot. So, I mean, it's it's tough. I think they're handling it like as well as they can. But I mean, it's just been devastating for Lewiston and the neighboring community, Auburn, and really just all of Maine in general. President Biden and the First Lady are visiting Lewiston tomorrow. What do you think will come from that visit? I mean, I think people here are hoping that 
we might see some some legislation. Maybe this is, you know, actually something that will motivate our leaders in D.C. to to do something to prevent something like this from happening again. I believe in the statement that they released, um, you know, they said they want to meet with the victims' families and just express their condolences. So there's that. But I think um, people are probably hoping that there'll be some action as well. Rachel Ohm is a reporter for the Portland Press-Herald. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks for having me. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. The look at how Taiwan is hoping its tech industry, the so-called Silicon Shield, can protect it from global conflict. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in relationships based on trust, collaboration, and shared values with nonprofit organizations and community partners, such as Eastie Farm, Zumix, and East Boston Neighborhood Health Center serving East Boston's diverse needs and vibrant culture. Arizona will be a key state in next year's presidential election, and a big divisive issue in the state is immigration. They're just pouring across the border. They're inundating the small cities. Our border is over-militarized, and it's a fabricated problem. How the generation gap affects views of immigration on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. More people, including some Americans, are expected to be able to leave Gaza today through the Rafah border crossing with Egypt. Two sons of former President Donald Trump are expected to testify today in the family company's civil fraud trial. And Republicans are challenging a blockade of the confirmations of nearly 400 military officers by GOP Senator Tommy Tuberville. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo and Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades. For homes and offices, Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. Upper 40s today. It'll be sunny. Skies stay clear tonight as it falls to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a sunny Friday in the mid-50s. It's 35 degrees in Boston. The fellow with arguably the best information about the future of the U.S. economy has spoken. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Live Oak Bank, helping savvy businesses optimize their high-yield online savings accounts. Rate information is at liveoakbank.com radio. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged yesterday, told you so, but there's always the December meeting. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer was at Fed Chair Jerome Powell's briefing and joins us now. Nancy Powell, KG on what's next? Extremely, David. Uh, He just said the Fed has to proceed carefully right now. I asked Powell if at this point the Fed was as concerned about overshooting, that is raising interest rates too much, as it was about not hiking them enough. Here's what he said. We think and I think that the risks are, are getting more balanced. I'll just say that they're getting more balanced. The risk of doing too much versus the risk of doing too little are getting are getting more closer to balance. If the Fed hikes interest rates too much, it could cause a recession. But if they don't go high enough, 
inflation could get out of hand. So, of course, the Fed is trying to wrestle inflation down by raising interest rates, making it harder to borrow and spend, and in theory, cooling off the economy. And Powell likes to say his team's decisions depend on the data. What data is he watching now? He's definitely keeping an eye on indexes of consumer confidence. Uh, The Fed also watches the labor market closely. If workers are scarce, companies have to pay them more, and that can contribute to inflation. Dare I ask, instead of raising or holding any chance for a rate cut anytime soon? Powell said the Fed isn't considering or even talking about cutting rates right now, David. Uh, The Fed's mantra has been to keep rates higher for longer as the Fed officials continue to assess the impact of their past rate hikes. Bonds are going higher still today, pulling the 10-year interest rate down to the lowest in more than three weeks. Stocks S&P futures are up nine-tenths of a percent. The United Auto Workers Union is calling on non-unionized auto workers to join the union movement after its lucrative contract deals with Ford, GM, and Stellantis. There's news that non-unionized Toyota has rushed to give its U.S. factory workers a 9% raise and reduce from eight years to four the time it takes to get top wages. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on Think or Swim. More at Schwab.com. Speaking in Minnesota last evening, President Biden called for a humanitarian pause in the Israel-Hamas war. Hundreds of injured Palestinians and foreign passport holders have started to leave Gaza, crossing the border into Egypt. It's part of an internationally brokered deal between Egypt, Israel, and Hamas following Israel's military bombardment in response to the attack by Hamas fighters on October the 7th. More than 1,400 were killed in Israel during that Hamas attack. More than 8,000 people have been killed in Israel's military offensive in Gaza, according to the numbers from the health ministry controlled by Hamas, intensifying what had been an already dire economic and humanitarian situation. Noor Arafe is a fellow at the Malcolm H. Kerr Carnegie Middle East Center with a focus on the political economy of the region. Welcome. Thank you for having me, David. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said in recent days that the end game in Gaza is, quote, ultimately up to Israel as it escalates its operations. Well, there was some Financial Times reporting last week suggesting that Israel does not want to occupy Gaza after this military phase, if you could call it that. Whoever does take that responsibility would have to build on a shattered infrastructure, but on an economy that was already in very poor shape. Yeah, so Gaza is already actually occupied by Israel. And while Israeli troops withdrew from Gaza in 2005, Israel uh, maintained control over the airspace of Gaza and over all land and sea borders. What this means is that the Gaza Strip was completely isolated from the West Bank and the rest of the world. And so trade links of Gaza with the West Bank, with East Jerusalem, with regional and global markets were completely cut off. So we're talking about a situation where Israel controls the movement of people and goods. So the productive base of Gaza before the current war was already eroded. 
Yeah, your analysis here actually is very much in line with something I saw from the United Nations Trade and Development Arm. They issued a news release the other day referring to a decade of, quote, suppressed development in Gaza. And they also pointed out that that left most, I think 80 percent of the population by the UN's assessment, dependent on international aid. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because like in the 90s, Gaza's economy was economically integrated and dependent on Israel, and it was strongly tied to the West Bank. And after Israel imposed movement restrictions and the blockade, Gaza's economy shifted to an isolated, disposable uh, enclave. The agricultural, fishing and industrial sectors have deteriorated and the construction and trade sectors were also uh, completely paralyzed. Um, unemployment rate in Gaza on the eve of the war exceeded 45% and two-thirds of the population was living in poverty. Um, the United Nations had already deemed Gaza to be unlivable in 2020. And now the situation is only getting more catastrophic. Now, given the level of carnage perpetrated by Hamas, Israel is very focused on a military campaign against Hamas. Given that realpolitik, I guess I would call it, what would you want to see in the short term? Would you want to see much more humanitarian aid allowed into Gaza? So in the short term, I think the most immediate thing that has to be done is to reach a ceasefire. There has to be a cessation of hostilities so that we can talk about humanitarian aid reaching Gaza, so that maybe a deal could be reached between uh, Hamas and Israel for uh, prisoners' exchange. Some insight on the situation today from Noor Arafay. She's a fellow at the Malcolm H. Kerr Carnegie Middle East Center. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. More of that discussion available from our homepage. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Sunny today in the upper 40s, mid-30s tonight under clear skies. Sunny again tomorrow in the mid-50s. Then for your weekend, partly sunny and around 60 both days. It's 35 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.